Welcome to the Disgruntled Rats Podcast on Android Development. Okay, this is the DGR Podcast, the Disgruntled Rats. We are producing our first podcast today, and it's going to be very exciting. We are going to talk about, um, first, an introduction to the Disgruntled Rats, who we are. We're going to go into some news, and... We're going to have a, a spotlight on a few technologies that we'll discuss, um, Tegra 2 and, and shaders. And then we're going to wrap things up. So to kick things off here, uh, we're going to go around the room on this podcast and talk a little bit about ourselves and who we are, what we do, uh, where we live, what our technologies are, favorite technologies, uh, favorite games, and what kind of phone we own. So I'll start with myself. My name is Michael Boldishar. I'm uh, a programmer. I enjoy programming uh, Java and uh, Android and 3D graphics. Uh, my hobbies include, you know, fishing, um, working out, uh, gaming, writing software. I live in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota. My favorite games right now. I'm playing a little bit of Dragon Age 2. I'm also playing Battlefield Bad Company. Uh, the f- type of phone I own is the Evo from Sprint, the Android phone, and I love it so far. It's been a good phone. Uh, you want to go next, Sean? Sure. My name is Sean Godinez. I'm a computer engineer. I enjoy writing software in C++ mainly, but. Uh, See, I, all, my hobbies are um, gaming, watching movies, working out. I've been getting into mountain climbing a lot. It's been pretty fun. Uh, I own an Atrix phone, the new Tegra 2, which we'll be talking about later in the podcast. And it's it's pretty awesome. It blows all the other phones out of the water by far. And um, I, I enjoy the math and computer science end of, of game engine development. Okay, Carl, I think you're up next. All right, so my name's Carl Haber, and uh, I live in Iowa. Um, Ames, to be exact, but it's about the same as any other place in Iowa. There's corn and maybe a few trees. Um, for hobbies, I uh, I like art and I like stories. It's pretty simple. Um, favorite technologies? Well, uh, I have to go with the classics. I think... Uh, Fire is probably my favorite technology. Um, <laughs> games, uh, I tend to like exploration games and building games. So Super Metroid and SimCity 2000 are probably my favorites, I think. And my phone, I've got a cell phone of some kind. It's got buttons on it and a, an extendable uh, uh, an extendable antenna on it. That's, that's pretty neat. Um, yeah. So, in other words, you're living in the Stone Age, Carl. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> That's okay. I do live in, I do live in a cave. <laughs> That's funny. Anything else you want to say, Carl? Okay, I guess I'm next. Uh, my name is Brian Morgan. I live in Burnsville, Minnesota. Um, I have a, a software um, programming degree from UW-Stout, but I don't really do uh, programming anymore. I've been out of the loop for too long, um, so now I basically work on the business aspects of disgruntled rats and do some of the 
um, music and sound effects and things like that, and basically the, the special projects kind of guy. So uh, hobbies, I like um, all sorts of stuff, photography and traveling and uh, music. I, I play a couple instruments, so that kind of is a, a hobby of mine. Um, favorite technologies would definitely be uh, probably building computers and, and getting them to work, um, even after the, the processor overheats and you have to figure out why for six months. and <laughs> That was a kind of an inside joke, but um, I enjoy uh, computer-related <laughs> stuff. Uh, it's just I always have since I was a kid, middle school and elementary school. So, um, Favorite games? Uh, I would have to say role-playing would be the, the genre of choice. Final Fantasy VII, I think, ranks, um, or should rank amongst everyone, as the best game ever made, <laughs> with an yeah, Ultima Online as a, as a close second. So, uh, I actually own an iPhone V4, um, and uh, I'm looking to probably get an Android pretty soon here, so I can have some street cred amongst the gang, but uh, that's what I'm looking at. So, I also <laughs> do website development, I've done that for about 10 years. That's all I got. Mike, back to you. Okay, well, thanks, Brian. Uh, so, that's the Disgruntled Rats. We are um, a company that produces software and tries to help out the community in in uh, Android and 3D graphics technologies. We're we're working on a few products here, just for for games, mostly for Android phones. And this podcast is going to be focused on just technologies and news relating to to 3D graphics for modeling uh, Android phones and other things that we find interesting uh, relating to these concepts. We are a very close group and we uh, have been working together for about a year now on various things. So this will be our first podcast and we're really excited about it. So not to bore you anymore, let's jump into the news. We're going to start off with uh, computer graphics news. Does anybody want to take the first item or jump in there? <laughs> I can definitely Go do ahead, it. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in computer graphics news, uh, the Kronos Group has released the final WebGL 1.0 specification. Uh, this specification allows hardware-accelerated OpenGL... ES 2.0 rendering in HTML5. This is accomplished through JavaScript bindings. And this is really exciting news for developers because it um, offers a new way to present information to users through web browsers. Uh, the Kronos Group also offers a test suite for WebGL browsers for free from their website. You need to register to gain access to the tool but you can see a link in the show notes um, for this information. And this was actually um, taken from C- cgw.com, one of their news items, and you can see the show notes for that as well. But this is cool because never before have we been able to do 3D graphics in web browsers um, easily. It's always been a 2D format with tables and paragraphs, and, and, and so there's going to be some interesting... Um, interesting work coming out of this. I can only imagine being able to explore Amazon.com by looking down a hallway or or flying around a city when you go to visit a city's website or, or something like that. You guys, What do you guys think about um, the idea of having 3D graphics in a 
web browser. I think it's. I think it'll add a lot. It'll. Uh, we'll see things we never even thought of before, like new ways of social networking. Facebook will no longer be a flat 2D page. You know, there's be all sorts of uh, incredible worlds to move through. Yeah, I agree. I think it's gonna. If it goes off right, <clears throat> there's not too many problems. It'll probably restructure the way we browse the internet. We all knew this was a long, long time coming until this came out. So this is a big deal. You know, doing web development in 2D is it's really limits you. You know, if you want to do anything relatively 3D, you have to do it in Flash and then pre-program it, action script it, and everything like that. So this is really going to make it easier for people to do that and probably utilize less resources um, on the computer because you're not running the the Flash player. You're just doing it right in HTML5, which the browser will support. So pretty cool. Yeah, and offloading that to your uh, GPU instead of your CPU. I, I've seen my Flash plugins taking up all of my processing mm-hmm. power. Imagine just pushing that off to your graphics card. It's going to be mm-hmm. amazing. Okay, that was our first bit of news there. Anybody else want to jump in for the second bit? Yes. Sure. Um, it looks like Amazon's going to be launching uh, their own Android app store. This was a source by Brian Chen uh, from Wired.com. Um, looks like the, the site went live, uh, but it's not been taken down. Um, I'm sorry, it has, has been taken down. Looks like the critics are suggesting the new app stores will create confusion in the community. Um, obviously, uh, Google has their own uh, marketplace where they sell their Android applications. So now and Amazon launching their own app store is going to be uh, kind of an interesting, maybe, um, harbinger of their own tablet powered by the Android OS. So with or without their own device, I guess the discussion is how successful will they be. Um, Amazon is definitely a front runner, and obviously the Kindle, and now they're looking at making their own uh, tablet powered by the Android. So that's good news for all Android developers, for sure. Um, yeah, I think we skipped a bit of news, but we'll go back to it after this one here. We're we're into the Android news. Um, you can go on and read the next part too, Brian. There's a little bit more information at the end. Oh, sure, the one by uh, Nick Bilton there at the New York Times. Um, he thinks that there's going to be a color Kindle in the works. Uh, it looks like Lab One Two Six, which is a Kindle team, has been advertising job postings for uh, the Android. <laughs> so, I think that's kind of a indicator. If you're going to look at it like that, that looks like Amazon's going to be trying to tackle um, a color Kindle and maybe powered by the Android. So. Huh, you know if that's going to be using uh, electronic ink or it'll be a light emitting? I'm going to guess light emitting, but I'm, I really don't yeah. know. Maybe maybe yeah. electronic ink. I guess that's maybe one of our uh, listeners can chime in on that if they have any more information. I guess that I'm hoping that it's e-ink, color e-ink, but yeah. I think there are a lot of difficulties with getting that to work with Android the way it's written today. It's just, um, it's not made for e-ink right. displays. A lot of the like, graphics are flashy, and you you know, you know can't do a lot. A lot of the refresh rates on e-ink aren't very high, so uh, I'm excited. I hope they don't end up destroying their, their Kindle, what's good about their Kindle. I just, I love it. I use it every day. Um, just the fact that it's not, it's pretty easy on the eyes. It doesn't have a backlit screen, and uh, it's just perfect the way they've made it. So it'd be nice if they can take the best things from the Kindle and put them into some kind of color device and not lose it, lose some of the features. So 
that's my two bits. Anybody else have any ideas? I've got a Nook right now, actually, and I, I really like that as well. I mean, they're, they're pretty similar, but uh, I, I don't know. I've experienced the Nook. I think the Nook's a really good device. I want to go back to the uh, the other news about the App Store, Android, or the Amazon's Android App Store. Do you know if they're going to be charging less for developers, like uh, taking a lower percentage off the cut? Well, you know, compared to the, um, like, if if you're looking at uh, the Android uh, market, or I'm sorry, the Google Marketplace, I think they take around 10% off the top, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while since I looked at the developer specs, but, um, you know, that's that's significantly less than the i iTunes store or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so they're already undercharging the competition. Um, I don't know if they're going to go any lower than that, to be honest with you, or if they're going to work out a deal with Amazon. Um, I know that uh, in you know other news, Amazon has had some problems. Um, at least their Kindle app it had some problems with uh, the iTunes world, but that, maybe we'll save that discussion for another day. So... Yeah, it seems like this is just more of an indication that they're building an Android tablet than anything else. Maybe not necessarily trying to compete with Google's store, but when they produce their own device, it'll automatically be hooked up to their app store instead of um, to Google's, so they get the money from it. That's that's my thought. I don't I'm know. I'm guessing that Google's going to fight that uh, maybe, maybe in the courtroom. Um, I don't think that they're going to want all that money to flow away from them, because they do take a cut from the apps that are developed. And they'll want to keep it that way, but they they openly allow it. Actually, you can have your own app store, and it's it's perfectly legal. Google encourages people to do that. Sure, but they still have to make money off the top, though. I mean, don't they? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how it goes. I mean, they get the initial business because everybody plugs into their app store by default. Uh, they were trying to create an open community and do good things. So when you know, other devices start plugging into other app stores. I don't know how much control they have. I th- they might start losing a little bit of control. I know that I wouldn't be pointing my phone at a different app store for any reason. Um, one of the things about Amazon is that they, uh, from the news article they had, um, more uh, access for payments in different parts of the world than Google does with their checkout. So maybe they're able to uh, sell more products to different parts of the world where Google doesn't have a market yet. So, I, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Okay, are we ready to jump back to the second bit of news from Kronos? Anybody want to take that one? Sure. It looks like there's a... The Kronos Group has created a Colada conformance test suite and are offering it for free. Colada is an XML interchange format for 3D models and interactions. And they've uh, they provided um, about 500 tests and scripts with the package. Yeah, I think that's pretty big news, pretty neat, especially since that's something that we're personally looking at using Colada. So if we can get free tests for our Colada parsers, that's great. Um, they also mention at the bottom that there's a fee you can pay to get um, a badge maybe for your web- website saying you're uh, Colada compliant if you want to go through a formal process. So that's kind of cool stuff. Um, exciting big news from those guys just these, these couple last couple days. Yeah. There's a dog catcher 
podcast client that's on sale right now in the Android market, and the proceeds from it go to uh, the Red Cross Japan Earthquake and Tsunami Fund. And the source for this was um, OMG WTF BBQ Nipples from Reddit. So thanks to him for uh, pointing this out. So I actually went out and downloaded this today uh, because the podcasting clients for Android are really not the greatest. I used Google Listen, but it it just wasn't a very good client. Uh, Podcasts wouldn't automatically download, and it was really hard to navigate and use. It's hard to add new podcasts too, so I'm kind of excited for this new Dogcatcher podcast client. I already have a bunch of my favorite uh, podcasts subscribed to, like uh, Car Talk and uh, Java Posse and a few other ones. So it's it's only a few bucks. I think that's probably a couple dollars cheaper than it used to be. Um, you guys, what kind of you guys do any podcasting? Listen to client or have a client or listen to any shows on a regular basis? I used I had a there's some game dev podcasts I listen to. I just set it up through my iTunes to to download automatically. Okay, well you guys can get a link in the show notes for the news. Um, item number three. So who wants to jump on that one? Uh, AT and T is sending letters to customers who are tethering their phones and not paying the extra cost. This type of tethering is accomplished by using unauthorized apps or jailbreaking the phone. Normally, AT&T makes you pay for this stuff, and and now they're sending out letters and letting their customers know that they need to contact AT&T or become automatically enrolled in a new plan or risk losing their unlimited bandwidth. And I I um I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of that idea. I I think the the hardware is there. They purchased the phone, and I think tethering should just be f- free. I don't think you should charge people for that. It's my opinion anyway. I agree with you, Sean. I think that this is uh, this is going to hurt AT&T's morale, or actually probably going to hurt their pocketbook more than anything, because okay, now we've got Verizon offering the iPhone plan, right? So, you've got people, um, I think this is a bad business move for AT&T, and uh, the reason is because people now who have jailbroken phones, which was ru- ruled legal, um, so people can legally jailbreak their phones. It's not against any service contracts or agreements with Apple or AT&T and their little mafia. So you've got people who can jailbreak their phones, install a tethering app, and simply run their laptop off their phone while they're a traveling in a vehicle, obviously not driving, but you know all sorts of different situations where they maybe don't have access um, on their computer and they need the tethering. And I understand AT&T wants to charge people for it, but you know what? It's uh, it's an app that they perhaps purchased on a jailbroken phone, which was legally done. They bought the frickin' $400 phone anyway. You know, I think AT&T is going to really harm some of their customer relations with this, and you're going to see more people jumping to Verizon if they don't have that um, that same contract agreement. And I'm curious to see if they actually had a contract agreement saying, you will not tether while using our phone. Uh, you know, I, I think this may go a little further. Uh, just sending someone in a letter and saying that if you use this app, we're going to, you know, charge you more money per month. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem like the right, the right move for them. So that's my opinion. 
Okay, we might get a little feedback from our listeners on this type of stuff, too. We have to be careful what we say. <laughs> like, uh, ATT is not the mafia. We don't think that. <laughs> we don't love AT&T. We don't hate them. Um, they're okay. It's just uh, it's just an interesting move. Like, like Brian said, it's not going to help their customer relationships. And I, I know I've had an AT&T plan before, and I had to drop it because they just weren't very nice to their customers. But... Uh, automatically enrolling people in plans and canceling their current plans. It it kind of sounds like shenanigans. Um, but that's, that's what happens, I guess, when you break the rules. Indeed. Okay. Uh, let's see, we're on to number four here. Does somebody want to jump on that one, or should I keep going? Alrighty, so there are piracy concerns in the Android market. This is from uh, The Guardian, um, and also SoulSkill on Slashdot's been um, pointing these out. Apparently, some developers in the UK, Kevin Baker, one of them, says that the um, Android market has piracy concerns, and he is, has enough trouble getting his apps discovered, and all of a sudden, he's seeing copies of his apps being republished on the market. Uh, so that these pirates are downloading apps uh, and recompiling them and claiming them as their own. It took two days for Google to take down his pirated app, um, the pirated app that he created. He created Sinister Planet, apparently. And he says that this could also be a concern with with malware. I mean, if there's no oversight on piracy, who's going to take make sure that no malware gets into the Android ad market? Uh, Google suggests there are a couple tools for fighting piracy. One is this ProGuard tool and application licensing. The ProGuard is an obfuscation tool for when you compile your source code, and the application licensing is an API that developers can use. Uh, they use a license verification library to uh, basically keep track of licenses and make sure that people have the right license of the software and they're not stealing it. So makes a call out to a central server, I think, and gets back a response saying, yay or nay. I'm guessing if they don't have a license, it shuts it down. Um, interesting tools. Uh, what do you guys think about piracy on the Android platform? I know one of my, my friends was actually bringing this up to me the other day. He thought it was a big deal. Um, any thoughts? Well, I know that um, there's a there's a nice article at, at keyslabs.com that actually talks about the, the Android piracy. Um, and yeah, Google has their LVL uh, license verification library, but that's been cracked. Um, cracking applications that make use of LVL. There's a nice long article about that. I think that it's going to be a big big issue and a big big concern in the future. We all know that people um, will always going to take free over paid at least. You know, some people will, uh, those who are maybe not more ethically inclined. So I think we're going to see more and more of this, and it's going to become a, a big issue more than it is now. It's not going to go away, that's for sure. I think it'll be a lot easier to deal with people who are trying to uh, make money off of someone else's app rather than just... Uh, trading it around for free because you can tra you can track money to where it goes. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I'm guessing that the people... Uh, it said in the article that they had their accounts, their accounts were even suspended, the people that were doing the piracy, and they, were, they didn't even get much of a warning or reprimanded in any way. So I, I'm not sure what Google's really going to do. Um, I'm sure they're trying to get the money back at least for them, but we'll, we'll have to see. Maybe things will change in the future here. So I guess we'll move on to 3D modeling. Um, I don't know if Carl, you want to talk about this one. I tried to send you a link to it earlier, but uh, is this something you you want to jump into? Oh well, uh, let's see here, uh, Geeks3D.com uh, and uh, Dentsu London had uh, has a 3D uh, time lapse uh, app, I guess, for the uh, iPad and it. Um, basically what it does is it will uh, play a video and as you move the iPad uh, across the frame and take a time-lapse photo it makes it look like a 3D image and we've seen lots of stuff like this in the past I mean uh, hologram technology isn't exactly new you just uh, you're projecting something on a screen and in this case the screen moves slowly and you have a slow exposure and they did this before with uh, LEDs you can buy LED clocks and things and I think some people have LED uh, billboards where they put it on a moving object and then it will play the message on the LEDs as the object moves and then when it's dark out it looks like you can read it that sort of thing so this is a, a continuation of that kind of technology and uh, just with a higher resolution. Yeah, they had some really neat videos. You guys should check them out on the our uh, show notes for this. Uh, just cool stuff. They're um, playing text in the air, and and um, they write messages in the air. It was just really cool. Okay, uh, the next item here is just. Carl, do you want to take this one too, or should I go on this one? Oh, just more or less a call for help for for modeling news, because we're we're sort of having trouble finding a lot of news items for modeling, and finding good RSS feeds and places to to pull news from for 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 game modeling and for anything you know artistic side of things uh, for game development. So. Uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you're a modeling expert and you have some advice on news sites and community pages you belong to, we're trying to include you in our target audience. But, um, so send us some links, send us some information. We'd like to pull in some relevant news from, from the modeling side of the game world. Um, and we'll definitely uh, mention your name in the podcast if you do so. You'll be famous is what we're trying to say. Famous beyond your wildest dreams, actually. So, all of our families will listen to you. Your, your name—it's going to be amazing. Exactly. Should we move on to gaming? Let's do it. Who here's played Angry Birds before? Raise your virtual hand if you've if you've played Angry Birds. Well, I know there's a lot of you out there that have. Looks like Angry Birds Rio is being worked on. Uh, looks like a probably a sequel to Angry Birds 1, the infinitesimally successful iPhone-slash-Android game. 
Um, you know, I, I think it was on the bestseller and most gross list for like, I don't know how many months, but they looks like there's some new elements to this one. It's, the game is actually based on a movie, and it's going to have new characters, uh, some cutscenes, and the dynamic maps. So that should be interesting. And uh, there's a video on the Android Guys blog. Check that out um, in our notes section. So uh, I personally played about 20 hours of Angry Birds when I was down in Florida waiting in lines at Disney World. So I'm pretty excited for this one to come out too for my next trip. Did you get three stars on all the maps? I yet, think Brian? it's impossible to get three stars on all the maps. I actually had to buy the Eagle and use the Eagle just to get through it. So <laughs> the Eagle doesn't give you any stars. What is the Eagle? Well, I, it's I a microtransaction. Uh, it's 99 cents for the Eagle, which is basically a one-shot kill of everything in the map. So you throw out this little piece of salmon in a little uh, ice block, and then uh, this eagle, about half the size of the screen, which you can't even identify really as an eagle, swoops down and basically takes the salmon, and in doing so, kills every little pig on the map. So, it's pretty cool. <laughs> That's amazing. You can do that on every right, map. And I well, no, you can only use it once per hour, um, and you can't reset the timer. So if you use it once, you have to wait 60 minutes before you can use it again. Uh, I guess that makes it more fun. Otherwise, I think I would use it on every map, and then I, you know, wouldn't enjoy the game as much. So those guys know what they're doing. But you know, think about the monetary aspect of that. They sell, you know, this little get out of your tough spot for ninety nine cents um, item, a microtransaction, and they've probably made, you know, I'm gonna guess half a million dollars off it. So it's pretty impressive. Very cool. Who wants to jump in here for the next one? I can go. Uh, we're exploring the world of gaming here, uh, all different realms, and one of the coolest games that I think is coming out is Battlefield 3. And so this is um, just an amazing piece of work from what we've seen in the trailers. Uh, it's incredible. It uses the EA Frostbite 2 engine, and there's a quote from the website, uh, this incredible technology takes animation, destruction, lighting, scale, and audio to new heights. Built upon its powerful game engine, Battlefield 3 immerses players physically and emotionally to the world around them like never before. Uh, there's the new Fault Line Episode 2 trailer on their website, and it's a very neat um, trailer of sniper fire, and I've never seen a game so realistic before that the the um, computer players are just they look real they peek around corners they they duck a little bit it's it's something we've never seen before now uh, I can't wait to see what happens in the multiplayer games where it's not staged but imagine 64 players on a map with planes and tanks in a realistic environment and along with it they bring back the prone position which they haven't had for a long time and I missed the prone position. So, thanks to them for that. Um, very excited for the game. Looks like fun. I know a lot of you guys have played Battlefield 2 and Bad Company. What do you guys think? Not pretty excited about it coming out as well. It's, it looks awesome. I think Sean 
I think Sean might get a little PTSD from playing it. That's how realistic it looks. <laughs> Just for <laughs> you listeners out there, uh, Sean is a, a war veteran, so he's been overseas, and we all thank him for his service and support. So, uh, yeah. Thanks the, for that um, plug. <laughs> yep, no, no worries, man. Um, so, yeah, the uh, Battlefield 3, ready for pre-order. Uh, I'm curious to know about how much this is going to eat up my new GTX 570 card. And if I need to get Ooh. another one, uh, looking at some of the demo video, it looked pretty darn impressive. So I'm wondering if my uh, my computer needs another upgrade, or if I'm going to be able to run it on what I have. Do you have any word on that, Mike? Um, I don't. I don't know what they recommend for hardware on this thing, but I guarantee you can max out what you have now with that. I've never never seen a game that realistic. You just got the new uh, GTX though, 570. Is that what you said? Yeah, I got the 570. I didn't Dang. get the 580. It was too. The 580 was marginal utility of that above the 570 wasn't worth the money. So yeah, it was the 570. Still a beast of a card. Yeah, it works pretty well. My uh, my <clears throat> ATI 5970 HD uh, died. It it got overheated and it's now in the in the garbage. So that's mm-hmm. a nice little seven hundred dollars down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I'm. I'm excited about Crisis 2 coming out also. That thing, they released a multiplayer uh, download beta, that, but then they, they ended up um, pulling it. There's cheating going on. They're really disappointed in their, their players with that. But that thing, on uh, Tom's hardware right now, they've got some performance benchmarks just just showing how, how well your card does. I don't see your card on there. I see a, a GTX 560, and it's about uh, 40 frames, 30 frames a second. Mm. For Crisis Two, so I think I think you'll be all right with the with Battlefield. I'd be surprised if Battlefield's graphics push harder than Crisis. Sure, and for everyone out there with a similar card, I'm sure we won't have to run it at full everything to enjoy the game. All right, you can always turn down the res a little bit and be just fine. All right. So what's this about MIT Media Lab and the Singapore MIT Gambit game? What's this all about, Mike? Um, maybe it's a little hard to follow. It was hard for me to follow the article itself. Um, if, if you want to read through it, Brian, we can talk about it. Sure. So it looks like uh, MIT Media Lab and the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab have released Improvisio. And it looks like this tool has two goals. Uh, one is short-term and one is long-term. The short-term goal is to see how the user interface and framing of the game engages players in dramatic improvisation. The long-term goal is to train an artificial intelligence system to play the same role as the players. Uh, this would be useful for realistic NPCs in games like WoW. So it looks like uh, they're actually going to be connecting their AI system to learn um, and model themselves after what real players do, which I think is fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, that's I mean, if you could develop that algorithm and then interface that with what people are actually doing and then have the AI model themselves after an actual player just based on learning the thousands of millions of permutations that people do I th- that would be crazy wouldn't it yeah, it'd be pretty wild i just i just finished uh, an ai class at university of minnesota and uh one of the, i was re- doing a lot of research for my final project and i came across the, uh information just like this and where they were they had implemented an ai system into a first person shooter i think it was counter strike even and uh they even had like stuff going out to the text, the chat, and they were, they 
test it out on live servers, and it took people a very long time, and only a few of them realized that they were actually talking to a computer after a while, and many people were like, because the, a lot of their, their AI system also like through injected text saying like, I heard there's a, an AI system on this thing, so they're trying to like completely throw off people's guard to suspect them that they were the AI system, and it was, it was a pretty interesting experiment, it was pretty funny. That's creepy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you bet. The Chinese are going to enjoy that. <laughs> I guess that's why it's the Singapore MIT Gambit Lab. <laughs> so how can we that's... tell that you guys aren't really just AI systems and that all my friends aren't just computers? Huh? Our warmth, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell me because you can hear my roommate in the background singing randomly. That's about <laughs> my best call-out. Sometimes you have to wonder if if the human mind is actually really the, a Chinese room style uh, uh, thought uh, process rather than an actual you know artificial intelligence thing. Okay, elaborate. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, talk to us more about that. Well, I mean, it. it I'm just really talking about uh, about the the basics of of, uh, of thought processes and, and how decisions are made and and really you know people do a lot based on associations rather than any objective rules to start sounds with. Like, yeah. Sounds like uh, critical thinking meets existentialism. I kind of like it. Huh. It's, you got my, my brain working, Carl. I better stop thinking too hard. I won't be able to finish this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to spotlight Carl next week and uh, have him talk more about talk about that. I think it'll be good. Okay, so that that bit of information came from slash dot Soulskill again, and uh, their website is gambit.mit.edu. Look in the show notes for that information. Uh, we're gonna try something new, and everything we're doing today is new, but <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna do a spotlight segment or try this out in every podcast where we do something different bring in a guest or talk about a, a specific technology and so this this week our guest is Sean Godinez who happens to already be on the call and he's <laughs> going to just kind of take it away and talk about what he wants to talk about um, take it away Sean sure thank you Mike for the introduction glad to be on the show thanks for inviting me uh, I'm going to talk about the Tegra 2 today and follow up with some shaders, some information about shaders. The Tegra 2 processor just came out in a phone called the Atrix, which I'm holding in my hand. And it's a pretty amazing phone. Oh, let me talk about the chip first. The, the Tegra 2, uh, the 250 model is out in this Atrix phone. It's a 1 gigahertz dual-core processor with a gigabyte of DDR2 RAM. It has a GPU with eight fully programmable shader cores, so four vertex shaders and four fragment shader cores. And the chip is capable, is capable of encoding and decoding 1080p video and supporting two displays. They've got the, the lap dock accessory, which is a small um, LCD and keyboard that you can attach the phone to. And the chip process, or powers uh, all the rendering for a full um, Firefox browser. And it's, it's a pretty impressive phone. I did a little test bench here with uh, the Quadrant app, which is a little test, benching, test bench app. And the phone like blew away all the other phones by twice as much. The next highest phone 
uh, was about halfway, and that was the Nexus 2. So I had like a 2,545 2, rating on it, and the next highest phone was 1,300. So it's just uh, an impressive beast of a chip. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And I looked at the Tiger 2 developer zone, and I wanted to get on there and see if I could... I used to see what I could see if starting development purely for that core alone. And it looks like it's going to cost 400 bucks for a, a little test board to get that set up. And you really you have to belong to a, a large company, I think. They're actually going to give it out to personal for personal use. And then if you actually wanted to purchase the chips, you have to buy them in, in quantities of 100,000 or more. So uh, it's not really ready for home use just yet, at least for developing at home by yourself. But it's um, it's, it's a pretty awesome chip. Uh, you can check, it more, check out more of the details at uh, Tegra 2 Developer Zone on NVIDIA's site. And they also, NVIDIA just released a uh, an app for Android that highlights or spotlights Tegra 2 apps. I guess apps that take advantage of the Tegra 2. And really, the only thing that would require a, a, an app to do that is just to run some shaders, I believe. I have to look more into it to see if there's anything specific about getting onto that app's um, highlight reel, but it's uh, it's seems to be I don't know. Then I'm just really impressed with the chip. So now I guess I'll I'll jump into um, shaders an overview. Unless you guys have some questions about the what, the what you saw 2. on the website for the games that were released, was there anything impressive, or were these just you couldn't tell that they were Tiger Two games? There is there is some impressive ones. I looked at that um look like a samurai game that was looked pretty cool. It had tune shading, so it was. Like all 3D models, but they were the shaders in them made it rendered them so it looked like cartoons, and it looked it looked pretty neat. And then there was another game that was uh, I guess it was kind of like a multiplayer tower defense, but it reminded me of World of Warcraft the style and the art. Uh, but then there were also simple games on there like a, a card game, so they they just had like a solitaire game that was featured on this Tiger 2 app site, and so that was getting all these simple games are getting. Uh, just as much recognition as these really fully developed games, and some of those those um, more impressive games were running the Unreal Unreal Engine, Unreal Mobile Engine, which is pretty cool. You mean it's not very cool, and nobody should look at it? <laughs> well, yeah, you teach their own, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. We're just laughing because we're working on a graphics engine as well, so um, I'm sure that the Unreal Engine is just fine at what it does. And anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll keep going here, Sean. Um, it's an ex- yeah that that's an expensive engine, and so what it does is it change your pocketbook pretty quickly. But I mean, it, you get you get a lot out of it. And we're gonna I'm I'm gonna take head on developing shaders into our game engine as well, and that's something I'm, I have a personal interest in. And that's gonna lead me into a, my topic, my sh- overview of shaders in general. So how shaders work is uh, you send you send your you build your vertex buffers and you send them down to the GPU and their first step during a rendering process is to go through the vertex shader and the vertex shader simply manipulates the position of a vertice of a vertex so you normally what happens if you don't if you don't write a vertex shader the default shader just applies your uh, model and view matrix transformations and 
moves that vertice vertex into um, either into your camera frustum or it just moves it out into space somewhere wherever that whatever that matrix uh, transforms it to and so after you go through the vertex shader there's a, a primitive assembly where it actually generates triangles lines or, or point sprites and from there it goes it gets rasterized to a 2d screen and then from that after that it's rasterized it goes to the fragment shader which is basically a the, your math component that tells you what the color of the pixel is at that spot of the, so that each fragment is basically a pixel and after that it, it there's a couple more steps but starting up from the from a high level so you have a triangle with points a b and c and you you put the you put your vertices a b and c into a vertex buffer and you give them normal values so you know the normal at each position and you give it a texture coordinate so you know the texture coordinate at each vertice and then goes, when that goes down to the vertex shader, you can actually do it. You can do a whole lot of stuff there, a whole lot of math, and you can you can calculate. Um, you can move the texture values around, so you can actually animate. So you had a you could yeah. You could, like I was thinking about this for our game engine. Like you could take a sprite, and you can have a whole column of of frames for that sprite. And in that vertex shader is where you would actually animate the sprite. So you would just update your texture coordinates a frame for just based on time. And so that would be processed there at the vertex shader. And then that was primitive the next step is a primitive assembly where it actually takes the vertices and makes it into a triangle. And at that point it, it figures out whether or not it's in the view frustum or if it's uh, completely out of the view frustum. And if it's completely out of the view frustum it just stops right there and moves on to the next process. But so if it's like partially and partially out, it will actually clip it to the view frustum. So so that's an extra step that takes place. And then after after it moves on from the primitive assembly, it gets goes to the rasterization step. That's where it basically takes your triangle and starts going row by row and um, breaking it up into the fragments, finding out which pixels are actually um, visible as part of that triangle, which where what pixels does that triangle overlap? And that's the rasterization process. And so once it breaks it all apart, you, it enters the fragment shader. And in the fragment shader, you have it's a programmable piece where you can then manipulate the pixel color. And you actually get to pass data from your vertex shader to your fragment shader. So, uh, and there's also an automatic step that happens as well, where you're you get an interpolated uh, interpolation of that data. So if you have vertices A, B, and C of your triangle. And your 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 fragment in between A and B of those points, you'll get an interpolation of the normal of the color, and uh, wh whatever other values that you happen to desire to pass down to the fragment shader. And so from there, you can do per pixel lighting. Uh, right by default, you're given garage shading, which is uh, kind of a flat flat shading. The the color is calculated at the vertices, and then you just get an interpolation of that color at the pixel at the fragment. And so with uh, per pixel lighting, you can actually interpolate the normals across the two vertices, and then you can do in uh, n dot l is what it's called. You just take the normal, dot it with a light vector, and you can get per pixel lighting. It looks a lot better, and you can use a lot use a lot less vertices to to make it look uh, more realistic, like a better shade. And so from the from the fragment shader, you can. Uh, it, the next step basically it checks to see that the pixel is actually owned by the OpenGL window, 
right? So that there's no other window that's overlapping that pixel. And so if there is something that's overlapping, it, it stops there at the processing. But then it goes next to like a scissors test, which is basically if you you can actually render just parts of the screen. So if you're if you're within that part that can be rendered, it, you can continue. Otherwise, it gets scrapped. And there's a couple other tests: a stencil, depth, blending, and then it finally goes to the frame buffer where it will be displayed to the screen. But there's a lot of power in um, vertex and fragment shaders. You can easily easily do um, reflective properties at the at the fragment shader level where you can just do a, a reflection to see and look up a texture say you have a cube box a cube map you can you can do some pretty cool tricks cool that, so, yeah hopefully i didn't lose anyone there but if so <laughs> oh, sean that was great yeah thanks for the deep dive sean uh so if, if i'm a developer and i'm making android applications that use 3d graphics when do i care about shaders what part of my game is shader are shaders important for, or at what point do I start caring and need to, need to implement them? Well, it, it it comes down to a balancing. If you're finding that your CPU is really heavy, heavily loaded up, and there's the ability to take a lot of your graphics processing and offload it onto your GPU, you're going to find that shaders would be really helpful there. Shaders in general just give you a lot more. Uh, bang for your buck, mainly because they're they're on dedicated hardware, and so you can do some really cool special effects. You can do a lot of things that you don't you don't get by default. Like if you want to do tune shading, if you want to do rendering where all your 3D models look like they're cartoons, uh, you would want to you'd have to write shaders for that because by default you only get Garard shading, which is a flat shading, and you only get vertices to be moved, whatever your camera, your model view matrix transforms them to move. So if you have an ocean scene, uh, you can send down just, a, just a, a grid of vertices down to the card, and then your shaders can actually manipulate those vertices' positions over time and make them roll with an ocean wave, and you can calculate per pixel lighting on that ocean to make it look uh, really very real. And then none of that processing power is is on your CPU either. You're not manipulating the vertices on the CPU. It's just all done on the GPU. That's amazing. That's um, basically free processing power because I'm sure you're not using the GPU as much and and it can do some of that, offload some of that work. Very neat. Cool. Thanks, Sean. Uh, well, that's about it, guys. We're about to wrap up. Anybody else want to have, any, have anything to add or say hi to their mom or anything like that? Uh, just want to say thanks for everyone who joined um, joined to, to listen to us today. It's our first podcast. Obviously, it's not perfect. We're at about 52 minutes right now, so bear with us. Um, if you uh, if you want to join us on Facebook, follow us. Uh, you might win a free T-shirt. Uh, they're pretty cool. Take a look at our, our Facebook or website. Either one, you can see a, a copy of the picture or the the picture on the T-shirt on there. It's a little rat. So um, wear it with pride. That's all I got. Yeah, uh, just www.disgruntledrats.com. That's our website. We're trying to write articles and blog about technologies and, and do things like podcasts and share our experiences with everybody. Um, like Brian said, Facebook, you could win a T-shirt. We have a raffle every month. And if you want to contact us or you have news to share or maybe you want to want us to review a product, we're, we're pretty open to accepting uh, products for review. 
uh, email us at disgruntledrats at gmail.com. And, and that's really it. Anybody else want to add anything at the end here? Okay, well, until next time, uh, this is Disgruntled Rats signing off. Ciao, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Disgruntled Rats podcast. We hope you join us next time. Visit our website for more information at www.disgruntledrats.com.